Hi guys, today's Bible reading comes from Ruth 1. You can follow along on the screen, or if you have a Bible open, you can follow along your Bible. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah. Together with his wife and two sons, they went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilian. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with the two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had both, after they had lived there about ten years, both Marlon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-laws prepared to return home from there. Uh, with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out, set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find, the re find rest in the home of, the other of another husband. Then she kissed them and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grow up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more... Sorry. Sorry. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it, so ever, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized um, that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as, they, as the barley harvest was beginning. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> uh, it's good to be here, uh, just to be able to share God's word with you. Uh, my name's Simon, one of the pastors at a church in Westmead, the Hebron Chinese Alliance Church. I'm sure you guys have figured that out out by now i think it's the second time i've been here so uh it's nice to see some familiar faces um and just like john said uh, you guys are going to be doing ruth uh with some of the the different staff workers from from my church we, we did this series in january it was really fun uh so uh, i just want to encourage you to read through ruth uh it's not very long it's four chapters it's uh very doable in one sitting um, but uh, there's lots of things that go on and, and it's a story. So the better sort of big picture grasp of how it goes, you have um, the better, uh, you know, your time uh, in God's word is as we, as we go through it. Um, and, you know, by the time, like lots changes by the time we get to Ruth chapter four and, and we'll sort of be looking back a little bit and, and re-understanding different things. 
as we go. I think it's one of the fun things about narratives. So um, yeah, I just wanted to encourage you to uh, read Ruth uh, during the week uh, and uh, have a sense of all of that. Um, but we're going to jump on in here today to Ruth 1. Uh, I'm going to pray just as we start. So uh, if you would join with me, that would be really good. Uh, my Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks uh, for the Bible, uh, for your word, for how it speaks about us and about you, about Jesus and the gospel, uh, how it always points us to the, to the salvation, the redemption uh, that is in store for us uh, in the gospel. Uh, Lord, would you help us as we think through our lives now and think through your word and, and what it all means, uh, look, to, to, to really to turn to you, uh, to trust you, to, to put our things into your hands. Uh, would you help us with that now? We, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there's, there's, like, there's a kind of story that we all love, right? A kind of narrative that we all love. A, a kind of story that challenges our expectations and prejudices. That surprises us with twists and turns that sort of uh, don't fit the mold of what should be. Uh, it's this story of overcoming, of the against all odds, the rags to riches. It's the story of, of redemption. Uh, we love stories of redemption. Uh, and we see them everywhere we go in life. Uh, and so this one story of redemption that I, I wanted to mention was that of uh, a man named Shane Fitzsimmons. Uh, now that might sound like a random name to you, but actually I reckon you've heard that name before, Shane Fitzsimmons. Uh, it wasn't that long ago, start of the year, uh, when, when my church was first looking at Ruth, we'd just come out of, uh, bushfires, right? Do you guys remember bushfires last year? How terrible it seems like so long ago, right? We don't think about bushfires anymore. Uh, we had a heck of a year, bushfires and then floods, uh, and, and now we're still in that pandemic setting. Uh, Shane Fitzsimmons, uh, you would have heard his name during the bushfires because Shane Fitzsimmons is the commissioner of the New South Wales Rural Fire Service. Uh, and during that time, especially, he became kind of prominent because of his leadership throughout the fire season that that we had. He was the dude that um, stood up uh, in, in all of those media interviews on the news and everything, explaining to people what was going on, what um, the, the fireys were doing and all that sort of stuff. In the rural fire service, his family has served in that fire service. And you can see where his passion and drive and duty comes from, can't you? Uh, where the compassion to look after fireys and their families comes from that desire to protect property and livelihood comes from. He seems like an incredible person. But the best bit about his story is, of course, is that he was not always these great things. Because Shane Fitzsimmons' story is a story of redemption. When he left school in year 12, he tried to get a job, he tried to get a trade as an electrician or a plumber, but no one would take him on. Eventually, he found, at a, he found a job at a mechanic but not as an apprentice mechanic. He was working the front service desk. And one day, the deputy principal of his school uh, came in because he had work done on his car. He came in and he commented that he was pleased to see Shane and that he was pleased that Shane had a job because, get this, he thought he would be in prison by now. Shane had a rough childhood. Uh, he wasn't one of those good kids. It's the, his story is one that begins with one of those bad kids, those directionless kids but it ends with him being this steadfast and inspirational guy who leads a nation in, in, in his own way. We love stories like this. And there's lots of stories like that, actually, in our lives. Uh, if you're bored, procrastinating, I don't know, hit up Wikipedia, Google Ed Sheeran, Google, Google Oprah, Google Snoop Dogg, Google Mark Wahlberg. The places these people came from is just incredible uh, what they've had to do to pick themselves up. And it's in our fictional narratives too, rags to riches, redemption stories, Aladdin, Cinderella, the great Gatsby, slumdog millionaire, all stories of victory that came from nothing. We love these stories, right? Why do we love them? Well, we love them because of how unlikely they are, how impossible they are, but more than anything, how hopeful they are. Because whether they're true stories or fictional, they give us a kind of belief, a kind of feeling that we too can do unlikely things, that we too can push past the normal and everyday limitations of our lives and become something better. They make us think about our lives. What if, 
what if I could just get past that stuff that's holding me back? We love those stories and the hope that they represent. Ruth is one of those kinds of stories. It's a story of one person's battle to be safe, to be recognized, to be cared for, and to have a place where she belongs. It's a great redemption story, a great turnaround in the face of all kinds of complex and seemingly impossible barriers. It's a story of Ruth of, of a person, but it's at the same time a story of a bigger story, one story in a, a larger whole, uh, one part of the Old Testament and of the Bible that speaks of God's story, the world's story, and how redemption of rags to riches, victory from nowhere, is at the very heart of what God has in store for the earth. And so we'll be in today in Ruth, right? Today it's chapter one, and chapter one helps us to set the scene. The first few verses of chapter one does that for us. Actually, in the first chapter, Ruth, Ruth isn't there. Well, she's not there at the beginning. She's not really in the picture at all, because instead we meet a couple named Elimelech and Naomi. These are Ruth's in-laws. Uh, Elimelech and Naomi are an Israelite couple who lived in Israel during the time of Judges, you know, the book of Judges. Uh, they lived in Israel during that time. Uh, you can see all of that in verse 1. They lived in a time when Israel was going poorly as a nation. Uh, and we know that from Judges as well. Uh, they were perpetually going through this cycle of turning away from God and then being rescued and restored, only eventually to turn away from God again and rinse and repeat. They were in a really bad place. Um, if you go one page back in your Bibles to the end of Judges, Judges chapter 21, verse 25, it says this, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Now, there's, there's more to be said about that line and how it relates to the book of Ruth. We'll get to that later on in the series. But for now, it's enough for us to understand that Israel is a place of chaos. It's a place that doesn't have rule, a place that doesn't have order. Uh, and it isn't living according to God's ways. It doesn't have a king. And people are just doing whatever they want. In the biblical narrative, that's always a bad sign, to have no king and to do whatever we want. That, that's the setting of Ruth. It's a bad time. And it's a bad time in the physical sense of life too, not just like faith and morality and spirituality, but physically it's a bad time in that respect too because there's a famine in the land. There's no food. And it leaves the Israelites in a situation where they have a real concern, a genuine fear for their everyday existence. And so faced in this, Elimelech and his family, they do a fairly logical thing. They lived in a land with no food, so they moved to a country where there was one, where there was food. It's a, a very logical thing. It's what you and I would probably do, right? If we lived in a place with no jobs, we would go to a place where we could find some. It's a really logical choice. They have this threat to their normal and everyday human behavior. And so the obvious thing is to change their behavior, to change their setting in order to meet their needs. And so right now, we live in a, uh, a setting where we're very hyper-conscious, if you like, of the risk of viral infections due to a certain pandemic that we're all living under. It's a threat to our everyday existence, and it's changed our behavior, right? We don't... We haven't kept on going with the things that we used to do. We don't shake hands with people. Uh, we don't, um, we don't uh, sit too close to each other. We have live stream church. We do all sorts of things. And I remember when uh, the pandemic first hit in, in Sydney, how you could see these pictures of Eastwood uh, empty and full of parking spaces. And I just thought, what dream is this? This is not the reality that we know. Somehow this new, new everyday thing just changed everything and new things became what we lived, what we did. Threats arise in the normals of our everyday life and so life changes. And that's exactly what Elimelech and Naomi do. They had no food and so their life changed. They moved. They left their home. They left their country to go somewhere in inverted commas, better. 
It's understandable, but in Ruth and in the Bible, this act, this story, this setting raises an issue, a question that's just really not very easily answered. You see, the, the Old Testament story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of them growing in number and going to Egypt and being saved out of slavery and rescued by God, the story of the covenant and the promise of people, land, and blessing, it's all about God making them Israelites in Israel, making them a, a nation of people who lived in a specific place, in, in the land that God had given them. It's all about what God was doing to establish them as a nation. And so when the book of Ruth begins by showing us a broken Israel, spiritually broken and physically broken, and then showing us a family not going into the land of God's people, but coming out of the land of God's people, and, and to a land of, of their traditional enemies, in fact, to Moab, well, it raises questions. It, it, makes, it should make us feel uncomfortable. It should make us wonder what is going on. And then, and, and there's this little layer of irony here too, right? The, the Elimelech, right? The, the head of the household. Elimelech, it, it's the name. It means my God is king. Israel was a place with no king, where everyone did what he wants. And here is this man who says, my God is king. And yet there he is leaving it's meant to contribute for, to us this thinking feeling, this funny feeling, this funny taste in the back of our mouth that something has gone terribly and horribly wrong. Is this family doing... Or is the problem with God, right? What is he doing? Why isn't he holding up his end of the, bar of the bargain to provide and to shelter and to protect and to save what's god doing why is it so bad for israel in the first place they're like five verses in and ruth is throwing all these questions but but they're the questions of our lives too aren't they aren't they the questions of our lives as well because as we live as we face all kinds of choices all kinds of situations and circumstances we find ourselves unsure of what we're supposed to do, of what we're supposed to understand, of how we're supposed to express our faith, of what God is doing in our lives, especially when we're challenged or struggling with something. What school should I go to? What course should I pick? What job should I take? Which person should I marry? How far should I go? How much should I spend? Why should I do it? Why should I not? On one level, those are all everyday human choices. Just, just decide. But haven't we all had that thought? Haven't we all wondered whether God likes our choices? Whether Jesus has changed the equation, whether it says something about our faith? Well, things look bad, right? At the very beginning of Ruth, it doesn't take long for it to get much worse. It looked bad. It gets worse. In verses 3 to 5, they're in Moab. They've left Israel. They're in Moab. Verses 3 to 5, all the men of their household die. And we're left with just Naomi, that's mum, and her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. And, and I just really want to, like, just really want to um, impress on you, right? Like, we... We cannot underestimate how big a disaster this is. We just can't underestimate how bad this is. Right? This, is, this isn't modern-day Australia, okay? So it's, it's, they don't live in a, in a time and a place where there are things like Centrelink, like government welfare or life and income insurance or something like that. They don't, they don't live in that setting. It's set in a time where women were bound to their families, where their livelihood was tied entirely to that of the men of their household. And to top it all off, for Naomi especially, she's, she's not even in a familiar place in her hometown. She's not a citizen. She's a foreigner living in a country that's not, uh, not her true home. She doesn't have a, a network of, of family, of, of, of like an extended family or a network of friends that she can lean on. 
In this story and this setting, Naomi and her daughters-in-law are entirely at the mercy of the kindness of others. They have zero power and zero influence to affect any change in their situation. It's, it's a true disaster. Now, to Naomi's credit, in this time of struggle, she does an incredible thing. She looks to the good of others. She goes to her daughters-in-law. She releases them to... Uh, uh, releases them from their obligation to her. So because they had married her sons, they'd become part of her family. Uh, but seeing that she could not offer them much of anything, she encourages them to go back to their parents with a blessing and a prayer even that they'd be able to remarry and find their livelihoods once more. And in doing this, she actually had a plan, right? We read in verse 6 this, that the Lord had returned to the aid of his people by providing food for them. The famine in Israel had ended. And so she thought she could now go back. But she wasn't about to force her daughters-in-law to go back with her with no security and no guarantee of how well they'd be accepted in. Now, here in, this, in these verses, we, we, we get a little insight of the kind of relationship that Naomi had with her daughters-in-law as well. Uh, and it seems that they really seem to love each other. It's a really nice picture. In verse 9, when Naomi releases them from her side, they weep loudly, really upset uh, that they might not be together. They actually refuse to go. Naomi just gave them like this free pass, right? This get-out-of-jail-free card. They can take the easy way out and she's saying, no bad consequences from it whatsoever. Don't worry. But they loyally declare that they'll stay with her. They seem to have this genuine and uh, real care and concern for one another. Um, And their relationship seems not weighed down, right? Not weighed down by conflicts and frustrations that we kind of think of as so often normal uh, in extended family situations, right? Certainly in-law relationships, even today, are well known for being difficult to navigate sometimes. But there's none of that. These two daughters-in-law in loyalty to Naomi do not want to go. But Naomi explains to them uh, the lack of future that awaits them that their fortunes are actually bound to them being able to find husbands, and that because of their age and different circumstances that they're in, there's very little realistic hope for that. So in the face of a hopeless situation, Naomi really says, go, in verse 14. She tells them again to go, and, and it, sorry, and in verse 14, they do. Well, Orpah does. At this, they wept aloud again, then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But it says that Ruth clung to her. And this is where we meet Ruth, this first moment of meeting Ruth. It's the first thing she specifically does in the book that's named in her name. And it sets the tone for what she's like throughout the whole of it. She's a clinger, (laughs) a clinger. She's fiercely loyal, fiercely faithful as a person. And the circumstances don't deter her. Look how she answers Naomi, verses 16 to 17. Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you will go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely if even death separates you and me. This kind of sounds like a like something you'd hear on Mix 106.5 love song dedications, right, back in the day. It's, it sounds like a melodramatic love song. Uh, but there's, there, there's something incredibly wholehearted about this response. It's not just a matter of where they go and where they live. Because Ruth puts it that she'll die with Naomi and be buried there. She has in her heart and in her mind something that is lifelong. She swears on her own, own life and she means it. It's not just an everyday physical aspect of living either. She's talking here of taking up Naomi's people as her people, of taking up Naomi's God as her God, of citizenship, of marriage, perhaps even, a lifelong commitment to something. Remember, we've got to remember Naomi is a Moabite. She's not an Israelite. She's not an Israelite by birth. She was a born enemy of them. And so in the big picture, she has no business, no business being included with God's people. But she's so completely devoted to the commitment that she makes 
that really she's choosing to become a new person, to take up a whole new identity in order to do it. Like a person who takes up citizenship in a country, but in doing so has to renounce the citizenship that they previously had. She runs in and does not look back. And so Naomi and Ruth return to Israel. They return to Bethlehem. But still, there are so many unanswered questions, aren't there? What, what will they do? What will happen to the next? Where will they go? Will, will they be included and accepted, or will they be outsiders to God's people? And is God with them? Like, is he, is he with them? Does he care about them? What's his plan for them? We have this setting for the rest of the story of Ruth. And in a lot of ways, Ruth 1 is just an introduction for the meaty good stuff to come. We're right on the edge of seeing what God, uh, what good God will do, what hope can be had, and what redemption can be bought. It's just an introduction, but I think there are some things for us to reflect on right here, right now in Ruth 1 that are helpful for understanding the rest of the book as well. First, I think there's something, something for us to reflect on. First, first there's this confronta- confrontational, this confronting presentation, isn't there? A confronting presentation here of the harsh reality of life. And it's kind of both normal and abnormal, right? This experience of Naomi. We look at her experience. We look at what she's gone through. And, and we rightly think how terribly unfortunate, how terribly unfair If we were Naomi's friends, we'd think of how ridiculously unlikely all of it is, how impossible it'd be all to anticipate. She had a husband and two sons. How could they all have died? It's not fair. It doesn't seem likely. And yet, at the same time, there's something about this story that's entirely believable too, isn't there? Right? The the great tragedy is how common great tragedies actually are. And so we're not entirely surprised that a person so, can so quickly and so brutally just lose everything, one thing after another after another. Whether we see, uh, we see it or at least we hear of it all the time, that there is a harsh reality of life. And that's something that we have to come to accept and chew on. That, it, that it's not just for others, that it's our lives too that can experience that. And in the midst of that reality, this harsh reality, there's a second thing to chew on, to think about. It's, it's that faith exists, that faith is real. It's not just an idea, but that it, it has a substance. Because as we read, we get in Naomi these curious little insights into how she sees God. I mean, she makes all kinds of what seemed like borderline choices, right, with her husband. She's party to this act of leaving God's people, leaving God's place, leaving God's promise. She goes to an enemy country. She allows her sons to marry enemy people, so to speak. But through everything that happens, she never lets go of her conception of God, her belief that God is the one who is over things. In verse 8, verse 9, verse 13, verse 20, verse 31, whether she's making positive statements or negative statements, she never stops recognizing God in her life, that he rules and that, that, that he's in power over all, over her. Naomi never stops believing despite those harsh realities. Faith is real. And the third thing that I want to reflect on is, is, is when we put those two, first two things together, the harshness of life and the reality of faith. When we put them together, we discover something, and we discover something rather human, it's there in verse 20, if, if you want a, a point to refer to. Naomi has returned to her hometown. She is recognized by her friends who call out to her by name. And she says, I'm not Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. And her life, her life, and maybe now even her person, is anything but pleasant. She says, I'm Mara which means bitter, because the Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. 
not interesting? Even as she reflects and refers to her bitterness, it is under the authority and power of God. But never, Naomi, never, Naomi never stops believing in God. Even here, she's framing her life in God terms. And yet, her struggle overflows. She feels bitterly in her heart over her bitter life. Or maybe here, at this point, we're tempted to sort of tut-tut to, oh, Naomi, you can't say that. You can't say that about God. But therein lies the something important that we need to understand here. Friends, faith does not take away the harsh reality of life. And nor does faith mean that we should minimize or downplay it. Sometimes we think that faith should mean that we feel okay about everything that happens to us. That that's what it means to be satisfied and content. That everything's just okay. We talk like trusting God means that we should never question, that we should never have doubts, that we should never feel the pain that we feel. We make it out like faith means that everything always has to be okay and look okay, that we aren't struggling or hurting or wondering what the heck is going on with this. I think particularly if you've grown up in a church, it's really easy to exhibit this falsehood, this lie, Perhaps even every week when we put on our easygoing, happy Sunday faces and rock up to church. In many ways, church can be a place where we struggle to be honest with each other. I've seen it at my church. I've seen it in basically every church I've ever been to. Of people acting fine on Sunday, but speaking of deep hurts, deep regrets, regrets, deep frustrations, deep worries outside of that window of church. And I know how tempting it is to just do that, but how hollow it leaves us, how hollow it leaves us feeling. Because I've, I've done it too. We think we don't want to trouble anyone. We think we don't want to make a big deal out of it. We don't want all that attention. We imagine that people will look down on us for struggling or that there's something wrong with us if we doubt. We think that somehow we're being bad Christians when faith isn't easy, when life isn't happy and giving us an easygoing time. And so in fear or shame or worry, perhaps sometimes in pride, we refuse to speak and to share to confess and to admit, to be honest and vulnerably open with each other. And we, when we do that, at the very least, right, at the very least, we are severely underestimating the church and one another. We're under, underestimating, underestimating the Christian capacity for care and love, for empathy and sensitivity. We're underestimating people's willingness to be an encouragement and not a burden. But worse and more problematic is this, is that it, it reflects a distorted view of faith. A view that says my faith is a product of my strength. It's reflective of my, uh, my ability and a product of my character. But the faith that I exhibit in life when I put on this facade tells people how good a Christian I am. So this distorted view of faith that says God's only with me if I'm good. Friends, that's just not what faith is. And it's not what God requires. We do not have faith because we're strong enough to do it. We have faith because God has done it for us already. It's not about us, it's about him. And we know that in the gospel. Jesus is the faithful one. He lived without sin. He obeyed the Father's will. Though tempted and anguished, he did not run from his mission or task. He went to the cross. That a painful and shameful death, he was faithful at the end for us. The good news of the gospel is, is that our faith does not rest on our strength or on how we look. It rests on his strength and on what he has done. 
And so this idea of rescue and of redemption and the hope of something better, it, it, it rests on him and what he's done too. It doesn't come from us, it comes from him. There are things in life that we all go through. There are times for all of us where we will want to rename ourselves Mara. You will go through loss. You will go through pain. Things you never imagined having to suffer through. You will go through it. And they'll make you want to rename yourself Mara. To see your life as bitter. And recognize that your heart is bitter. Sometimes that will be just petty immaturity, melodrama, <laughs> overreacting. Sometimes it will, be, it will be because of deep and relentless anguish. We know that feeling. There are times. The task of faith is not to pretend like they are not so painful and not so bitter. The presence of those feelings does not necessarily mean that we have cast God aside or that there's something wrong with us. Faith is not this magic eraser for the pain and frustration of life. Faith is hope in something better. That there is a cure, but a bigger one than just our, but, but, but it's a cure for something bigger than just our immediate struggles. Faith is a belief in redemption that God has in store for us, not just something that makes us feel better and feel happy about life, but something that changes our actual person, our actual identity and existence, our, our, our being. As we return to God and as we return to his promises, just like Naomi, Ruth and Ruth are on that edge, returning to Israel, returning to God, looking for a new identity, a new person. Ruth 1 prepares us for that, that redemption is waiting, that there is a redeemer. God has something in store for us there. All we have to do is hold on and go back to it. This is, after all, what happens in this passage, right? Begins in verse 1, leaving in famine. But by the end of chapter 2, uh, chapter 1 in verse 22, Naomi and Ruth return, and it tells us that they return to harvest. They left in a famine. They come back to a harvest. They return to God's people in God's place, and we get this feeling that as they return, as they hold on to faith, that God's going to meet them in their need. That God will answer those questions. That God will provide for their lives that he will redeem them and their pains and their struggles, and that he'll do it even through their bitterness. That they have always been with God's purpose, uh, that they've always been within God's purposes, in their joys, in their pain, in their good choices and their bad, in their faith and even in their doubt, that they have been within God's purposes. Friends, I think that's true of us as well that we can look forward, that we can look ahead, that we can know that our faith is complete in Christ, that we can hold on and return and wait for something better, a hope. Don't be afraid to admit your troubles. Don't be afraid to share your pains. The security of our our hope does not depend on how good you are at being a Christian. It depends on Jesus. It is finished, he says, on that cross. So whether you see yourself as a Christian or not, Ruth 1 is simple, come back. Come back to God, come back to Jesus, and just, just see. Sit on that edge and see what he does as you return. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we want to give you thanks and praise that you are God who is good and gracious and kind, that we can return. You give us that second chance. Thank you that, thank you that you love us so much that it all depends on Jesus, not on us. 
We ask that you would help us to, to take up that truth in our lives, that we wouldn't be self-sufficient, independent, works-based people, but that we would be people who run to you and rely on you and who know that we live in your grace. Uh, Lord, I want to pray for this community of Christians, that you would draw them together, that you would grow their love for one another, and that this church would be a place where people can where people can worship and celebrate, lament and fear, where they can sing and cry, where they can be faithful through all the ups and downs of life. Would you continue to show them yourself as, you, as they become this, as they grow in this? Would that grow their faith and their ability to see the glorious hope in redemption that we have? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so I might get Simon to come up and we'll go through that. And Steve to hand over like if uh, some person has a question. Um, so I've got bad eyesight. It says... It says, was Naomi... <laughs> oh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> was Naomi wrong to go to Moab at the beginning? So I guess that's like leaving. Is it, is it wrong for her to leave Israel? Yeah. I think it's a, that's it's like... So, so I wonder if it's the wrong question. I mean, it's a great question. I think it's the <laughs> question that we're meant to ask. Um, so, so the intro is meant to be like, it's, it's meant to help us to see that, that things are wrong, is bad. Uh, and if you look through a lot of like the exilic prophecy, it's like that as well, right? So, you know, in Ezekiel, um, when they're sent to, into exile, right? God, sort of Jerusalem is in ruins and all that sort of stuff. It's meant to raise all these questions, right? But where the people of God, we had his promises, he's faithful, he, he can, you know, he's more powerful than the other nations, all this sort of stuff. But if that's all true, then why are we slaves in this country? Why are we getting kicked out? Why is there a famine in the land? Um, right? So, 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 so it's the right question because the, the, Ruth one and, and those other books as well, they, they, they start and they give us that feeling, that impression that it's all going wrong. Yep. Um, and so is Naomi wrong? I mean, <laughs> in, in a way, yes. And in a way, that's not the point, I, I think, is maybe what I want to say, right? Like, if you really had to go super black and white about it, then it's like, yeah, it's wrong, in, you know, in the sense that, like, with judges as well, which... Naomi, uh, Ruth comes straight out of Israel as a nation. He's living wrongly. That's why the you know why God has um, left them in their state. And, mm. and then when judges arise and when prophets come, he, he restores them and, and sort of brings them back. So, so there's something wrong. Yep. Um, and yet, I, I, I want to say it's not the point. Right. Right. It's the, the it's it's the right question in the feeling of it. Mm we're meant to sit there and be like, yeah, this is all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Um, but it's not really about Naomi's morality. You know what I mean? It, it's not this thing. We're not meant to sit there and go forensically, has Naomi sinned? What will God do with it? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, yeah. So, it's, so yeah. it's like drawing our attention to the state that, mm. man, Israel's in famine, which is bad to start with. Yeah. Um, like yeah. God's meant to be providing for Israel and mm. then Naomi leaves. It's mm. just like, things piling on top of each other yeah. that we're meant to see. Yeah, and certainly you'll find as work through Ruth that Naomi Naomi encourages some questionable things. Mm. Some some very 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 questionable <laughs> activities uh, or things come out of Naomi's mouth. And, yeah. and and the 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 passage doesn't really give you enough to be all like the point of this is for us to make that judgment. It's the, mm. the point is something else. It's kind of like yeah, in service yeah. of the, the bigger story. Yeah. I think, yeah. 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 That's a bit of a pattern in the whole Old Testament. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Lots of like, weird oh, yeah, stuff yeah. That happens. Yeah, like all the, like, um, 
multiple wives and all that yeah, sort of stuff. Yeah, multiple wives. Yeah. There's like the rape. In yeah, Genesis yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh. And it doesn't say anything. It's just like it just happens. And, yeah. 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 Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, next question. Is it wrong to be angry at God or to have anger directed towards him mm. at times of suffering towards God? Mm. These right or wrong questions, right? Like, <laughs> um, yes and no, also. Okay, so, like, I mean, you can take the Job example, right? Job gets angry at God, and uh, if you read through Job, the whole thing is like Job's legit and his feelings are legit, right? He doesn't deserve any of it. And so, in a human sense, we really resonate with his anger. and um, and I think rightly we sort of think it's right. And yet still at the end, God comes in and says, where were you when I created, yeah. <laughs> created the world, right? And so, so it doesn't matter that, in, in Job at least, it doesn't matter that he's, in a human sense, right mm. and justified. God still comes in and says, I'm God. Mm. That's it. <laughs> yeah. I'm God. And, yeah. and so I think... I think that God is very gracious and empathetic regarding our human responses and our feelings that, that we, get, we do get frustrated, we do get angry, that there is pain. Um, but what God's calling us to is to trust him with those things and to, to believe in him through those things uh, and, and to deal with those things, um, I think. Yeah. yeah, and then like I guess from a more experiential side of things as, as humans, um, the truth is is that we're never a hundred percent justified, even if we're justified. You know what I mean? Like yeah. even if we're we have a good reason to be upset about something, um, a lot of the times the anger that we present and show yeah. it has underlying roots things yeah. things that have come from elsewhere yeah. that. You know, it has more to more to do with us having unresolved things yeah, yeah. than it does just that, whatever yeah. that, that, that issue is. There's and, always that, like, log in our eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, like, you know, I, I have kids and um, it's easy to get angry at them because <laughs> they're kids. But see, even that statement belies a an assumption that's not completely true. I say it's easy to angry, get angry at them because they're kids. And that's true, but actually it's, it's just as true for me to say it's easy to get angry at them because I'm not a good parent or I'm a sinful parent. But, like, as a parent, it's, it's never my fault. It's their fault. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it's right for me to say as my children they must obey me. But how much of my anger about their disobedience comes from my own sin and my own struggle rather than their capacity or incapacity, right? So, um, so, I don't know if I answered the question. Yeah, I think so. so oh, I don't know. I mean, up to the person who asked it. But yeah. So a complicated answer. It's like yeah. There's, yeah. there's some elements of truth to it, and God's sympathetic to that. Like he knows how he's made us and made us mm. to have these emotions. I guess we touched on it when we did the um, neglected emotions series and we went through right, Psalms, okay. yeah. talked about some emotions that mm. we might feel a bit of shame around as Christians. Mm. Um, so implication for men. Yeah, so I mean, like, if we were to be black and white, that, that that question, I might say, yeah, in a way, it is. It's wrong to be sort of like judgmentally angry at God, um, but you know, in a, in a very black and white sense. Yep. Um, but what God actually, but that's almost like too black and white for God. Yeah. So maybe underlying that is sometimes we think of God as this distant, separate thing mm. and that he has this list of rights and wrongs and you fall on one side of that equation or you don't. But what God actually wants with us and has with us is relationship mm. where you get to go to him in anger or go yeah. to him in fear or go to him in worry yeah. and joy and happiness and all those yeah, things yeah. as well, right? Yeah. So when, when, when Job's like, God, what the hell? God's not like... Mm. Don't even talk to me. Yeah. He's like, oh, let's talk, but you got to remember I'm God. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And at the end, he says that Job hasn't sinned in all of this as well. Mm, mm, yeah. And so yeah. That's, that's a bit shocking to some people because he really goes after, after God. God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, cool. So think about yeah. it in the context of a relationship. It's complicated. Like, so there's some things that you can maybe say to your wife that you can't say in a different relationship. 
sure. so maybe within the relationship with God, hmm. he can his the the strength of that relationship can handle you expressing your anger mm. at him. Mm. And and while at the same time we recognise that there is a kind of anger directed at God that wouldn't be justified. Yeah. That that is never justified. Yeah. 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 Oh, all right. And where's the line? Yeah, you tell me. I, this is what's fun about growing in faith is yeah, we, yeah. we get to. Yeah, I'm, I'm all about the, the the chewing on it. Yeah, yeah, same. I'm, I've come to that side of things a lot. Uh, and the third question: How does someone keep their faith and see God as kind and gracious if they have a tragic life such as Naomi's? So really, just kind of a follow-on from all the talk. Yeah, I mean, look, the simple reality to that is that there's no way there's no there's no one way where we say this is how you do it if your life sucks that much mm. right um it comes back to recognizing the kindness and graciousness of god so we can we make this human mistake sometimes where we we correlate god's kindness and graciousness with our circumstances so if i'm making lots of money god is generous if I'm poor, God's stingy. That's that's how we think, right? And, and, and like it's instinctive, right? Yep. If I go through lots of suffering, you know, God is X, or God is Y, and or if I'm yeah, like that's just what we do, and uh, we need to be careful that we don't see God as that's like prosperity gospel, yep. right? God yep. gives me things when He's happy with me; He takes away things when He's not. Um, so, so God's quality for kindness and graciousness doesn't change regardless of circumstance. And, and we know that, and I guess this is the fundamental Christian answer, because we see God's kindness and graciousness in Jesus on the cross, not in us and our lives, right? So the more fixated we are on us and our lives, it tends to be the less fixated we are on Christ on the cross. So we let our lives determine what Christ and the cross means when we should actually be doing things the other way around. We let Christ and the cross determine how we interpret our lives. Mm. Um, that's not easy to do, especially when you're in it, especially when you're in it. And, and, and I mean, if you just walk around your church and talk to people, especially some of the older people who've been through some stuff, you'll, you'll, they'll tell you stories. They know. They've been in it and they've wrestled with that. Um, and you don't have to go to old people. There are lots of different people who go through different things. Um, yep. You know, my wife and I have gone through some things as well. And, um, it, you know, we need to go back to Jesus. Yeah. And we need to see the, the kindness and graciousness of God. That, that's, Christ is the word, right? He's the revelation of God. When we see Jesus, we see God. And it's the fullest display of who, who God really is, like uh, how we should understand him to be. Um, if we have a tragic life, we have a tragic life. It doesn't mean we don't have a tragic life, yeah. but it doesn't change what God is like either. And, and yeah, so, we, we need to practice going cross to life rather than our life, therefore, is how we understand. Yeah, yeah, I see. So not trying to, so trying to have a big enough view of everything mm. so that we don't correlate the small, or not the small things, the, we don't correlate just particular events in our life with how mm. God yeah. is as a character or person yeah yeah and if i if i this is a very black and white way to put it and it's kind of like a pretty hard way to put it there is nothing about our lives or anything we do experience or go through there's nothing about us that determines who god is in any way shape or form god is first right it works the other way around everything about who god is is what determines who we are as he, as he makes us and creates us in his image right? it doesn't go the other way yeah, and so we, we need to be careful with how we conceive of God sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's a helpful um, reframe for us. Um, and I think I might just throw in one last one to finish off, kind of off the back of that. Hmm. Um, so one of the, the ways that you ended the sermon, or one of the thoughts that you hmm. had at the end of the sermon was that, um, that in church we tend to restrict what we share. Yeah. Um, so we'll have these tragic things that happen in our lives, yeah. but and we might think of these things, mm. think these things of God, but we won't share that with anyone. Um, in your experience, like why, like why don't we? And um, yeah, how how do we share it in a good way and mm. respond to that as well? 
I mean, because we're Asian, and <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the honor shame thing. Yeah. We, we don't want to look bad. Yeah. We don't want to put people out. We feel embarrassed. So I mean, like, I used to have these. Um, I used to have these these teenage girls in my church. They've grown up now. They're great, actually. But I remember they used to really want to go to certain events at church, but they couldn't get a lift, and they would refuse to ask. Like. I had like five people who lived two streets away from them who drove and could just bring them, but they would not ask for a lift. I was like, what's wrong? It's, it's like, oh, we don't, we don't inconvenience people. It's just like, do you know what I mean? Like, so, so we have this, we've been, we've, we've been brought up, we've learned this, this thing, which is that the worst thing we can do is to put other people out, mm. is to make ourselves look bad in front of them or like we need them or be indebted to them or something. So there, there's cultural dimensions to that, I think. Yeah. Um, and, and, my experience it's of an Asian church and you guys are an Asian church. So I guess even in, a, even in a Western culture, it probably expresses it itself as independence. Mm, Maybe yes. like, oh, I, yeah. I should be able to get there on my own. Yeah, I don't yeah. want to ask them. Yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah, so, so sometimes it's that. Um, uh, <laughs> that's nice. Um, sometimes I think that there's... Um, sometimes, sometimes the reason is we don't know how. Um, no one's done it before. It's not something, you know, there's this taboo vibe, you know? So, I mean, like today's day and age, maybe the obvious examples would be like struggling with pornography or something. Um, my experience of talking to people who struggle with pornography is they, they, they really want to talk to someone about it, mm. but they, they can't, they, you know, for the shame reasons and stuff, but also they just better know how. Uh, but, uh, like I'll give you an example uh, in, in my life, uh, for Tanya myself, um, uh, one of the one of the great taboos in society that people don't often talk about is miscarriage. Um, it's just it just it's too hard to talk about. It's not it's not even a taboo. It's just too hard. Uh, so Tanya and I, many years is seven years ago, we we lost our first child. Uh, so we had miscarriage, and uh, that was really hard uh, for, for all sorts of different reasons. Um, it was, it's kind of funny. I, w- I was leading a Bible study. I, mean, you know, I had a small group, uh, and the day that the day that we had that miscarriage was the day my small group was meant to meet. And so, you know, sort of happened in the midday sort of time frame. I'm like, people are coming over in eight hours. So I fired off this one. I was like, look, some stuff has happened. We're not having growth people. We're just, you know, coming over to my house today kind of thing. So we cancelled. And then, um, and then you know, it came to the week after because we have weekly Bible study. So people coming in. It doesn't take a week to process this stuff, right? It takes months. Um, and, um, and so I ended up calling off my Bible study for a month uh, to give out us time and, and my wife in particular. But obviously, I had to explain this to my group. I, I, so I, I wrote them a long email, showed it to my wife. We shared with them what had happened and stuff. Um, I had always had a conviction that we need to learn how to do these things as well. And so it was kind of like a good opportunity, but it's still really hard to do. Um, and then, you know, afterwards, you know, people like give you some space and they ask, hey, well, all that sort of stuff. And I remember one of the girls at church came up to me. She's married. She doesn't have kids. But she said to me, I can't believe you did that. And I'm like, I don't know which way this conversation is going to turn. She said, I would never be able to talk about that if it happened to me. Um, um, and, and for her, it was like just, just a really good example like, that we can talk about things and we don't have to make them like the end of the world or, or something, right? Um, but anyway, the point is, though, is that since then, other people who've had miscarriages have been able to share it. Uh, not all of them. Like, I, I, as a pastor, you know, I'm, I may be privy to a bit more information than most church members. Some people have had them and haven't shared about it, but some people have. And, um, they, they, do you know what I mean? They, they, just, they just need an example. They, we, we don't know how to talk about some things sometimes. Um, and... And that doesn't mean we know how to do it now. It's just we know that we're allowed to and that we should and that it helps. It, it makes such a big difference. Um, it didn't make it easy to go through. You know, I remember days where we go to church and for whatever reason, the sermon was just a little bit hard and, and like my, my wife would leave crying kind of thing. You know, it was still too fresh and too raw. You still got to go through it, but we're a church you know we're meant to be there for each other you can't be there for each other for things you don't know about but that's it's just simple human reality that's one of the most i mean for your pastor's sake and stuff your leaders one of the most frustrating things is they can't be there for you if they don't know about your stuff and um yeah i think i think we're better for it if we learn to make it
steps. They're kind of small steps. And yeah, you don't have to go. <laughs> a bit of courage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it just takes one. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and, and you build, you know. Mm. Yeah. Cool. So I might finish off with the last comment then. Thanks, Simon, for your humble encouragements, clear and simple answers. I think it's probably echoed by everyone here. Thanks, Simon. Thanks.